0: Welcome to episode 27 of the Rebel Matters podcast. It is quarter past 12 on the night of Thursday, the 21st of December. This episode is due to come out on Friday morning, so I'm up a little bit late just putting the finishing touches on the episode for you. I'm just after getting back from a nice wee Christmas card making get together that we held in the back social room of Ackley. And I actually forgot how nice it was just to sit down with other people and get the creative juices going and just get stuck in the bit of arts and crafts. So give it a go sometime. This episode I think is probably one of the most important podcast episodes that I've been involved in so far. It's a sit down conversation with someone who will be very well known to anyone from the Belfast area, West Belfast and from Bala Murphy in particular. It's a conversation with Father Des Wilson who is a revolutionary, a radical thinker, an activist and someone who has spent his whole life standing up for people's rights in the face of massive inequality and injustice. For those of you that are listening that aren't familiar with Belfast in general, Bala Murphy is Area within West Belfast, and I recorded this podcast up in Spring Hill Community House, which was a centre that uh, Father Des founded in 1971. After the podcast, he gifted me a copy of his latest book, 90 Merrily in the Shade. And he's that which he wrote just before his 90th birthday. So I just want to read you a little bit of the extract that was written by Kieran Cahill That's on the back of that book to give you a bit of an idea of the kind of work that Father Des was involved in for his whole life. Father Des Wilson was the spiritual director to the boys of St Malachy's College before moving to the parish of St John's with responsibility for Ballamurphy. In 1963, he gave a talk to the fourth years in which he said the following. Our view is that the world must be better when we leave it than when we enter it. That for every day of our life, there should be someone who has more to eat, to wear or to live for. In 1971, he founded the Spring Hill Community House as a place for discussion and learning, where people could work and enjoy themselves in freedom. With others, Des created work opportunities, held public inquiries, organised education programmes and staged entertaining and thought-provoking plays to encourage people to take back power and control for themselves. Des has helped us to see a life full of possibility, our possibility to be defined by our dreams and by our determination, not by the dictates of others. He has lived the motto of St Malachy's College, glory from within, and has passed this on to each and every one of us, allowing us to bring that glory out. He has taught us the gospel of small beginnings, that when we sow with integrity, however modestly, we need fear no one, for no one can destroy that seed, it will flourish a hundredfold. Father Dez Wilson, for all of his 90 plus years, has continued to live out that advice that he gave to the fourth year students in 1963. This is actually a really relevant time to be putting this episode out there and for you to be listening to it because of the fact that right now there's an ongoing inquiry into the Ballymurphy Massacre, which was carried out by the Parachute Regiment of the British Army in August 1971 and resulted in the killing of 11 innocent civilians on the streets of Ballymurphy. Everyone's probably familiar with the a massacre that happened on Bloody Sunday in Derry in 1972. There was an inquest into that to clear all the civilians that were killed at the hands of the Parachute Regiment of any wrongdoing there whatsoever. But up until this time, the British government have actually refused to hold an inquest into what happened on the streets of Baltimore. So actually would like to use this episode to raise a little bit more awareness about what went on there and maybe then afterwards you can go off and find out a little bit more about it yourself. But what happened between the 9th of August and the 11th of August 1971 was that the Parachute Regiment opened up fire on, the, on innocent civilians that were in and around the Ballamurphy area at the time. Francis Quinn was the youngest, 19 years of age, shot dead while he was going to the aid of a wounded man. Father Hugh Mullen, 38 years of age, was a Catholic priest, shot while going to the aid of a wounded man and while waving a white flag at the same time. Joan Connolly was 50 years of age, was shot dead as he stood opposite the army base. Daniel Taggart, 44, shot 14 times, most of the bullets went into his back as he lay on the ground. Noel Phillips, 20 years of age, shot as he stood opposite the army base. Joseph Murphy, 41, same was standing opposite the army base. Edward Doherty was 28, was walking along the white rock road when he was shot dead. John Laverty, 20, and Joseph Corr were both shot at different points at the top of the White Rock Road. John McCarr was 49 years old and shot while he was standing outside a Catholic church and he actually died on the 20th of August later on that month and Paddy McCarthy was 44 and was shot dead on the 11th of August as well. This is something that's been covered up by the British Army and the British government ever since it happened. But it is typical of the sort of treatment that the people of West Belfast and people in nationalist communities all around the six counties suffered at the hands of the British government. To give you a bit of an idea of the social and economic inequalities that exist in West Belfast, I want to read you out a few statistics from a recent enough constituency profile of West Belfast. It's from June 2016 and at the time there were 18 constituencies in the whole of the six counties of the north of Ireland. So West Belfast has the lowest life expectancy for males and females out of all the constituencies. It's got the highest cancer rate and the highest death rate from cancer out of all the constituencies. It's rated 15th out of 18 in terms of the... Students who leave school with five GCSEs or more. It's top of the charts in terms of people over 16 who are claiming some sort of benefit. It's got the highest rates of child poverty. It's the third highest in terms of crime rate. And it's got the second highest rate of road traffic accidents out of all the constituencies. That's definitely something to be considered as well. And I think it really reflects the need to have people like Father Days in the community that are helping the people on the street there just live better lives and kind of get what they deserve, really, and lead as he- you'll hear him talking about. Leading a, a kind of a happy and a prosperous life and not waiting for other people to come in and get and hand it to you, but to get out there and take it for ourselves and organize amongst ourselves to make those things happen. I would say that. That is something that you'll feel on the streets of West Belfast. When I look at all the things that we have now that weren't there for maybe twenty years ago, well we have Bunskull Fobla Farsa that was founded in the seventies and I've got a, a really good episode with Seamus McShann there. If you want to go back and listen to that and uh, practice your listening to your couple foggle, that will give you a good history of the what the Irish Irish language community have done in West Belfast over the years. But some of the projects that they have been involved in. We're starting the primary school, Bonskolfub of opening up Cultalam Magadamo Fech, which originally contained Manskolfarstia, which is now College of one of the most successful schools in West Belfast. Uh, a a theatre, an art gallery, a restaurant. There's a radio station there. We've got different youth clubs around West Belfast that are providing uh, a, a really important social outlet for kids who are coming from areas of social disadvantage. All those things have been created by People within the community themselves, they haven't been waiting to get a handout. They've organized themselves into groups, had specific goals and have fought very hard to get these things set up. And I think that that sort of attitude is something that that we've all learned from people like Father Dez who have been in our community. We have a long standing familial connection with Father Dez as well. He married my mum and dad in Dublin in 1988 and a few months later baptized myself and my brother Carbra in Spring Hill Community House. And he actually baptized our youngest brother Nisha in the in in Colin Glen and I think Nisha was the first person to be baptised at that mass rock for 200 years. Interestingly he was also down to um, officiate at my dad's funeral whenever my dad had a very close brush with death back in 2006 and that was actually the last time that I met Father Des sitting in the waiting room in the intensive care unit in the Royal Victoria Hospital. So there's a long-standing history there with Father Des that made me even more interested in getting to speak with him and to record this little podcast with him so I hope you enjoy it. How did you get involved in the community here, Father Des?
1: Here, I was. um, I spent 15 years on the staff of St. Malachi's College, and then I was appointed to St. John's Parish, which is just down the road. And um, my first view of the conditions in which people lived here, I was appalled by the sheer poverty and lack of provision for people. It was atrocious. But what, what really struck me most at the time was I'd lived here in Belfast all my life. Uh, up to that stage, I was now, what, 30-something. And I didn't know And I was utterly enraged by that. First of all, at the way people were having to live. The housing was bad. There were practically no jobs. Uh, And the people were treated abominably by public authorities. And uh, so that was one outrage. But the second outrage was that I didn't know. How could you live in a city for more than thirty years and not know we were living in a bubble? And so, what with all this, and then came the real, um, uh, the real upheavals in 1969, um, and. Um, Refugees. I mean there were thousands of refugees coming from different parts of the city uh, burned out and um, a lot of them came to West Belfast for a place to stay whole streets were being burned out so I found then that who was accommodating these people? The first people to accommodate the refugees in 1969 in what really was a pogrom against the Catholics were the people in this area who already were living as really was very little. And they were the first people to bring them in and gave them gave them, well, looked after them and opened up the schools uh, and created um, centres, uh, you know, refugee centres, and this was a tremendous lesson too, because um, the public authorities, well, the police were involved in the pogroms, and um, the welfare services weren't able to cope, and the people in Ballymurphy, White Rock, are all around here. They were the people who received them into their houses. You know, so all this was a tremendous experience and a very enraging one. And um, when I could understand that this area contained... Layer after layer of refugees through the years. It was through the years, there'd been a pogrom against the Catholics, people would come in west of the city. And um, so that really, I was thinking that there is layer after layer of refugees in this, in this uh, area. You could tell the history of Belfast by, by listening to the, these people who had suffered so much. And uh, so then, of course, a lot of things were inevitable. That um, questioning who was doing what and particularly who, what was the church doing. Um, we had come along believing that, um, that the church had answers to problems. We began to realise that the church was a problem in many ways because the people around here, most of them belonged to one of the richest organisations in the world and they were living in huts. So there was an anomaly there, the, the books would call it anomaly. It was a shame and a disgrace. However, so from there on, a whole political situation evolved in which uh, there was no question of taking sides, there was only one side, really. And uh, so a lot of things. Then in 1971, 72, um, I got a, a house from uh, rented from the Belfast Corporation as it was then £5 a week and um, there was a lot of money and there was and we set up a few of us set up a, just a house an empty house um, and said well here at least people can come and talk and gather and be independent because in those days, you always had to ask somebody permission to use this and use that. And I said, "Well, the only, the only thing you have to ask here is anybody using it before me." So, and so we started the Spring Hill Community House in nineteen seventy-two. But the aim of that was to be independent. uh, per, uh Primarily an adult education center, but as well as that, whatever happened to turn up and of course, all through the years you you um, you'd have all kinds of things happening, people were been killed, and um, people didn't know where their people had been arrested and brought to some police barracks or whatever and uh, our house was the only house in the district with a telephone, so nowadays it's different. It was marvelous now because every youngster of no height <laughs> had a telephone and uh, but those were the times. so that's what it was. that was the thing it was and it was a question then of not only not only seeing what could be done. But what could be done by people themselves? That was the primary interest, as far as we were concerned. As far as I was concerned, it was it wasn't. A, we ought to have stopped, and we were stopping. Asking to be properly governed, we were demanding to govern ourselves. So that was the most. That was the real revolution, as far as as us far was concerned. But. Then along came an absolutely miraculous person living there, Noel Ryan, and she joined us uh, because she realised that this is what she'd been looking for. She came from Dublin and very inventive person, marvellous organiser. I couldn't organise for Portland, you know, I couldn't. I could think of things should be done, but I wasn't an organiser and um, so she she just did miraculous things for the next 40 years uh, along with us and it was also a matter then of getting people abroad um, especially Catholics who had a duty in the matter to understand what was happening and so we Got relationships with people in Norway and France and Italy and America, and away up in Newfoundland, as a matter of fact. And from then on, it was a question of going over occasionally, working for um, various, in different aspects of what was happening, uh, trying to fight for equality and employment. To, getting rid of discrimination and the McBride principles were international and were accepted state by state by state in the United States of America fair employment in Northern Ireland. So the rest of the years flew by and um, gradually they, they, um, this um, project Spring Hill Community House uh, began to undertake whatever happened to be there including health care and stuff like that and most of all the important thing was it was a meeting place for people and we ran classes Liam Andrews uh, taught painting and the Irish language and uh, uh, various people, um, like that person who – no, this one down below in the middle – people, uh, painters and all became interested and we got in contact with various um, people in different countries who were doing much the same kind of thing, in Maryland for example, in Baltimore. Viva House and places like that. So, what was one thing and another? The the work then sort of made itself. Mm. Um, so that was the story of
0: it. Myself and my brother were christened in the house, I believe. They were? Myself and my brother were christened, but they were <laughs> in indeed, the they were christened. <laughs>
1: uh, the, the question was, you see, that what was going to happen? I mean, if you're talking about people doing things on their own initiative, um. I, I in 1965, or sorry, 1975, I fell out with the church authorities because of their policies, and said that we should be helping people, uh, not 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 telling them what to do, finding out what they want to do. But I fell out with them in 1975, and the result of that was I was then. Uh, an outsider, as far as the Catholic Church authorities were concerned, and was um, there was no way that, that I, I wasn't to use any church property, and that meant if people wanted to have a meeting in the school, you couldn't do it. And um, really, what was happening was that. What was happening to us was what happened to the Irish language people, that they were isolated by the local society, do you know, the local um, authorities, and how had to do the thing themselves. People, if they wanted to build a new street, they want to build it yourself, <laughs> And also things like an industrial estate up the road, which was taken over by the British. They send in the troops rather than allowed to develop, um, to create jobs for people. But, all right, what happens if somebody comes to the door and says, my child has been put out of school, misbehaving, misbehaving in a situation like this? So we started up then a school for Young ones who had been put out of school, and uh, a lot of them had been, and um, we didn't want to do that because I was almost aggressively in favour of adult education, because I felt I'd done enough when I was in Somaliland College for fifteen years. So it was almost aggressively adult. But when people came to the door, and it was at that point that Noel Ryan was so wonderful because she knew what to do. And people then were able to set up a school for um, children who'd been eliminated from school or had refused to go to school. And eventually, then the house became the biggest art centre for adult education uh, among all the centres it was a quite a marvellous performance and a um, new one then started in Conway Mill and another one started up the road so there was one, two, three things uh, all catering for young ones who were not going to school but if somebody came to your door and said that, well you could do that but if somebody came to your door and said uh, that I can't get my child baptised or somebody came to your door and said I don't want to have my child baptised in the local church what do you do? You're in a dilemma. So the only thing was okay we'll do it here so then it came a custom of quite a lot of people actually being baptised here in the house or in the mountain, indeed.
0: <laughs> I know my youngest brother. You baptised him in the that's at the,
1: right. the mass In the mountain, that's right. So, but that was the whole thing of once you accept that people have a right to determine their own, not their own future, but their own way of getting to the future, then you're in a different game altogether from knocking at authority's door you're not knocking at authority's door anymore so um we then what was one thing in another way we, um we find one thing led to another really and um we we then set up, um, um, you know, seminars for people. We didn't call them that. You didn't call it a seminar, no way. But, um, and we're amazed at how many people from the arts world and writers, people from the university, came. And what they would get would be 15 people at most in a room in the district, namely the one, two, three room house where we had rented it.
0: What were you teaching in the seminars? Hmm? What were you teaching in the, sem-
1: in the seminars? Well, it, dep- see, w- there was, it depended what was needed. There was uh, Irish language, English language, French, and there was history, and there was, um, oh, what else was there, management and things like that whatever happened to be the thing that Mm. seemed to be necessary and people took it up well and good. Uh, History was a big thing and there's also here, there's uh, computers and um, computer education and and, um, what do they call it? Also, you know, heritage people, forebears and all that. Uh, People are very interested in that. So, which is so big a part of the history, but eventually then we, people had a um, writing clubs and um, we had our own theatre where people were writing their own stuff which was marvellous uh, because <laughs> it was a wonderful thing because you were actually having people writing stuff and performing it and laughing, and I remember there were times when people were rehearsing and at a time when we were allowed the use of the schools uh, for a meeting or two, and uh, there was shooting outside and people down on the floor, so. It, it was wartime, and and really, your um, your. Um, it was a question of what do you do in a wartime. I mean, and um, the theatre was a big help because it meant to say that people had another weapon when they, uh, in fact, they had a weapon when they had no other weapon, and that was. To laugh your enemies to scorn, and uh, you could make fun of the Brits, and you could do all kinds of stuff, and you could make fun of the welfare services, who were making the terrible bags of things. But and oh, laughter became not only a relief but a, a weapon, you know. So and people began to people were writing their own stuff anyway, and they were just trying to do it better. So, what was one thing and another, that's the way it went through the years. And it really went wherever the whole thing took us more than. He didn't plan these things necessarily. What we did was to. Um, in, in these seminars, right, we didn't call them uh they were just meetings. What we did was, uh, Noel and the rest of us would would have to decide what the first one would be and might be interesting and invite somebody along. And But the people who came along, and you wouldn't have more 12, 13, 14, 15, um, they would decide who's coming next. Right. So, and it was fascinating because it was on for years. And then there were other ways too. and took a local... Um, Paul and ran um, public inquiries and things. We said, look, just because you're knocking on doors asking for a public inquiry on one thing or another and the authorities say you're not going to get it, that doesn't mean you're not going to get it. You do it yourself. And so it was a very interesting experiment. There was um, public inquiries run by the people themselves. Uh into education, into um, um, unemployment, into various atrocities that were occurred when somebody was killed, like up the road and uh, Sean Downs was killed by a plastic bullet. So people now knew that they could run their own public inquiries. They could have their own education. Now, we knew that, that there was going to be – that all this would be iced out, you know, by the authorities. Um, and But did the second if, – if that didn't succeed in eliminating whatever the people were doing for themselves, which was the object of icing them, as I used to call it, give them a complete cold shoulder. The pattern was that people would say, we'd love to have a crest for the children. Eventually, well, why not? And somebody would find an old hut somewhere or a corner and they set up a sort of nursery. The women, mostly, And um, there was nothing that the authorities, so-called authorities, could do about it. But after a year of cold shouldering them, sure enough, the authorities, whoever they might be in church or state, would come along and say, you're doing wonderful work. My goodness, wonderful work, but there's terrible premises. Should we have we could maybe fix you up with better premises so lo and behold it was found that there was a space for a building whereas I've been told there wasn't and a building was built but of course it was either a state or a corporation or a church or whatever that was the pattern and it went on and on and on that was the old pattern of a lot of things in dairy and all that. So we began to learn what the political pattern was when people do this. And we had to make up our minds. What's your attitude to that lovely new building there that they're making a crash, you know, for the children? And we had a sort of formula that as long as what they were doing there was suitable and beneficial for the people using it and suitable not just to the needs of the people but to the genius of the people. We use that word genius especially, uh, to know it but then we're supported. But we know that eventually in a number of years' time people will say, Oh there's no money for this anymore. And the austerity times came in and that pulled the bottom from whatever. We knew that was a pattern.
0: want to hear a good one. Hmm? I was in Palestine this year. Yeah. And it was based at a refugee camp. Yeah. And they have the exact same pattern that you're talking about. That's very interesting. That's
1: very interesting. Right
0: now, at this very minute, they have have a community centre that they started themselves, but they don't take any funding from the authorities for it. Good for them, so that they can be independent, but at the minute they're building a nursery school.
1: Good, this is very interesting, that is the pattern, and we found it here, we could see it happening in Derry, and I said that's what they do, and so they refuse you, you start up yourself, they offer help and give it, it lasts for three years, four years, five years, And then the money's pulled away from under you.
0: Another example, there's a fella called George a few years ago in Bethlehem Mm -hmm. started this marathon to highlight the fact that the Palestinians couldn't move freely around the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So the marathon is 26 miles. So they didn't have a 26-mile loop, so they had to run around the same circle five times. But he did it for the first two years, and it was a big success, by himself and him and his friends. And then the Palestinian Authority out there says, right, that's great. We'll take it from here. And he said, no way. But between the jigs and the reels, they put so much pressure on him that he had to walk away from it. And they, they took it, so they have it now.
1: Well, that's a pattern. Yeah. Eventually, the people find, you see, what they did here too. That's fascinating, that thing. But the pattern was the same there as, 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 it, as, as here. That's really very interesting. I mean, I'd never heard that aspect of it with regard to Palestine. But that's exactly it. What would happen then? The people, if they they built a community centre, they'd have to finance it because the authorities would give you, maybe if they were pushed to the wall, they'd give you enough to build it, but not enough to maintain it. Mm -hmm. So the big temptation was make a club of it. And that means to say a social club with drink and all the rest of it. We reckoned that, uh, as far as the British were concerned, um, a club with drink loosens tongues. So they had an interest in having a place where people's where tongues were loosened, you know, in the big ear. So, but also, they could only survive for a limited time if they were on their own resources, and it was surprising that so many of them actually um, did survive. The other hope would have been that you'd have to make various arrangements uh, with about cooperation with the, the authorities, but there was always the hope here that the time was coming when the authorities, whoever they might be, would be forced to cooperate with the people. And to an extent that happened. But it was a very slow and very painful process for people to achieve that kind of cooperation, whereby the people could benefit, not just the authorities uh, in that kind of situation.
0: Looking back now, what do you think with the targets periods of time for Baltimore Free and West Belfast?
1: What do you think of the...
0: What do you think the darkest periods of time were? Like the, the worst periods of time? Well, the
1: worst in the periods, it. Oh, well, the 1980s were terrible. They were the most awful times. I mean, the, the time of the hunger strikes and all that, and the terrible propaganda that was put out about people. Um, people here got very little sympathy uh, from from anybody who could have given sympathy, you know. And that's why they resented the coming of people like Mother Teresa and people like that. Um, they, um, they couldn't get rid of her quick enough. Uh, not the people. The people wanted her to be here. But it was because here was somebody coming who wanted to come in, not who wanted to get out. And uh, so... All that, um, the, 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 I don't know, what you were saying there, but how did that start? Um, I can't think just what set me off on that. About the worst times? Why, the worst times? Well, the terrible times when people were going up and down to the prisons. People were being lifted off the street and interned. Uh, and of course, there was a concerted. Series of killings, massacres. There was one in North Belfast, there was one in Ballymurphy, there was one in Spring Hill, there was one in Derry. And the people say, oh, how terrible. But look at the pattern. These were exercises and terrorism by the state. And they, they killed people uh, here and then said all the, this was in the gunfight and all this. So Kieran and all his colleagues are working to get the truth of the matter and to get the truth of the matter into the courts, and it's taken all those years since the 1970s. So certainly the worst period, I would say, would be in… it just rose to sort of climax in the 80s. Um, uh, when People going on hunger strike and, and um, dying of starvation. I mean, who, who could possibly tolerate that? It was shocking and dreadful. saw so that, um, and, and of course, people were been. the propaganda was appalling. Uh, people here, for instance, they were accused of being the terrorist community, you know. They were accused of being against everything, against law, against order, against everything. Um, and um, even blamed for their own poverty, you know, which is a very usual thing. I've no doubt the Palestinians will be blamed. Uh, they shouldn't throw stones at the soldiers. You know, they shouldn't put up a smoke screen. So the soldiers couldn't see them. This was terrible, terrible offensive. You know, I mean, that's really what they're saying, isn't it? That that uh, the Palestinians are not going to, they everything they do will be an act of terrorism.
0: It's a re- kind of a repeat of history in a lot of ways, isn't it? Yes,
1: it is. It seems patterns much the same. You were over there then. You we were.
0: I was there. I was actually there twice this year.
1: Is that right? It was
0: there in March, and I went around and met a lot of groups and things like that. And one of the groups in particular were, was a community centre based at one of the refugee camps. Oh yes. And actually, the, you should. I was talking to you know Fergal Enright. I was talking to Fergal this morning, mm-hmm. and he was just talking about the, the bar that there was four barracks surrounding this area. And in the camp that I visited in March, they have six parks surrounding the area as well, and, and a lot of the a lot of the infrastructure is very similar, and a lot of the things, like a lot of the things you would, like making out like the community is a terrorist community, all those things are exactly the same. It's the same and thing. the same pattern that you were talking same about pattern.
1: there. Same yeah. pattern.
0: So yeah. I went back in August again. I spent another two weeks out there.
1: That was great. I, the more that's done, the better, because it's only that. But And yet the world at large seems to be very indifferent to what's happening over there.
0: Um, One of the reasons I wanted to go there is I feel like even though you know, it was very important for the communities around here to be self-sufficient and do things for themselves, but at the same time, looking back now, I can see that when people did come from the outside to lend a hand or to show a bit of solidarity, that if you look back now, I kind of appreciate the fact that that people could see what was going on here. Not everyone, but some people would come in and, oh, and sure. show support, and that's kind of the reason why I wanted to go out there. And
1: well, that's a great idea because people have to see that that uh, if if you can isolate people, you're winning. Uh, governments will isolate you, uh, the, the, and certainly they would isolate the people here. Oh, this is a this is a civil disturbance problem for the British. It's not a war, you know, against bad government. Yes. And they succeeded in um, in isolating people from the rest of the world. And the fortunate thing was that there were people who didn't buy that story. And so you had people writing in Italy or France, uh, or maybe it was Eddie White from Ardoyne was up in Norway working away. Uh, you know, he was in the trade union. And there were people in America and all that. He and they didn't buy the story because they saw what was happening. So gradually, um, we, you know, we were more, we were all more confident that the the, the world at large might be a bit sympathetic uh, if, if you were talking to the right people. But that's a fascinating one about about about, about.
0: You know what's interesting is I went to university in Limerick. Yeah. I remember on my first, it was the first or second day of university there. And I had, you know the way I was down, I didn't know anybody when I went down there. So I got a, I made a friend on the first day and I was hanging around with him. And later on that day, he came over to me and he goes, he was from Limerick. He came over and he goes, here, well, that girl over there, he says, a Protestant. You must you must you must hate her, do you? Like you must oh, really oh be goodness, And yeah. I think for me, like that was a shock for me because obviously mm. you know it's insane to have some some anything against somebody because of their religion, but it just highlighted yeah. the fact that that, yeah. that point of view is out there and that kind of quite widely accepted that up here it was Catholics and Protestants who were yeah. just yeah. killing each other, which is uh, well that was pity. the story
1: that was put out. It's
0: a good smokescreen, I suppose, for the Probe,
1: actually. That was the story, and you had to counteract that. By saying, you know, asking people, well, what, what happens if you've got year after year after year of bad government? What's the end of it? Revolution, of course. That's what's happening. Do you think we've had a revolution? I do. I think the revolution came when people in the mid-60s, and the revolution was starting anyway. When, um, I mean, other revolutions had come about when people... Uh, talked about, I mean, uh, they talked about, about who owns the earth, you know. I mean, those revolutions were happening. But I think this particular one would have been when people stopped asking to be properly governed and started demanding the right to govern themselves, which was a completely different concept, and I think that's the most important one. So you're not asking to be properly governed anymore. You're demanding to govern yourself, and any people that want to make progress, I think that that has to be a starting point. Mm-hmm.
0: When you look back now, what are your happiest times around here?
1: How, oh well, the happiest times actually are when you're able to look back and see what people achieved, uh, and to to realise that uh, so, some of the some of the barriers were broken. Uh, for instance, uh, I remember the time when one of the shocks I got was saying to someone who was working here um, in the early days, in the 70s, um, saying to her, What would happen if, see all the people that come in here, clergy are brought in from outside the doctor comes in from outside, the teachers come in from outside, the barristers. He said, what would happen if our solicitors and barristers and lorry drivers and everybody were from a district? Oh, she says, that kind of thing's not for us. And that stuck in my mind. I said, that is a symbol of what's happening, of what has happened to us. So then, the thing, with kind of slogan was, "If it's out there, it's out there for us," you know. And and in a sense, there wasn't anything you couldn't do. Well, that was an exaggeration, but it it was rhetorical and it was useful when people started to build the houses for what was known then as a Gaelic village I remember very well hearing again and again oh it'll never work it'll never work (laughs) it's pie in the sky it worked (laughs) and building Bombay Street they built it and Um, Conway Street Mill knock it down knock it down build it or rebuild rejuvenate it that's all never happened but people didn't believe it It would never happen so actually looking back on all those things where people said it couldn't be and realizing yeah it could be I mean those were very happy times you know in a sense when you were when you're reflecting and all that. But every one of them was a painful experience. Uh, The opposition you got, the, um, the sheer viciousness of the opposition and the viciousness of the opposition to any kind of progress by the people, from those you thought should have helped, namely church people and all that kind of, um, some helped, most didn't. Um, I mean, people who had the power and the money. Uh, so all this was the opposition that was given to people simply because they were trying to do their own thing, because nobody else was going to do it. It was amazing the opposition and the the abuse that people got. Uh, and the mistrust that they got just for doing this. trying to better their own conditions of life rather than to sit and say wouldn't it be great if somebody would help us but nobody will <laughs> you'd wait forever yeah. so but those those were happy, the happy times too when you go into uh, when you go into the uh, wherever I uh, have a theatre programme, you know, in a wee place, no bigger than the, than the I suppose, the floor space of this house, uh, but to, to have a theatre, playing it and all that, those things were good. And to look back on those was good, you know. And also when you saw... um. There were moments, there were moments, for example, 1990, we had an international, we said, what would happen if we had an international conference in Belfast and we ran it ourselves? Um, And uh, where would we have it? What we were supposed to do, obviously, was to hold it in some corner of West Belfast. So what we did was, we, we said, no, we we'll get the Europa. So we went to the Europa and said, this is what we want to do. And to our great surprise, um, the Europa people said, yeah, right you are. So um, we had the International Conference, that was in 1990. People came from America, came from England, came from France. There's a whole report on it. Uh, in the archive, but that was a very happy moment because this was a breakthrough into the city centre where people would have expected you don't do that. And as a matter of fact, when some of the staff in the Europa heard that Jerry Adams was going to be present uh, as a not as a speaker, but he was just going to be there. Um. So some of them threatened to walk out of the Europa Hotel, but they didn't. So times were changing in uh, 1990. And the, the, um, the other very happy moment I remember was when there was a march. A lot of the marches, you know, for civil rights and so on, went up the road. They might start at Dunville, way up the road. And people then began to say, We'll go march in the wrong direction." So, and I remember, as we got down to whatever the, I forget the names of the streets, but you know where, there's a city hall, and you're marching, uh, you're marching to the city hall, and you're coming down the Falls Road and into the Castle Street and Devon Street and all that, but you turn in, and you're then that way to get to the city hall. Yes,
0: say uh, Royal Avenue, is it?
1: Aye. Uh, well, it was coming down the other way. We were coming down the false road, you see. Right, right. And was the side street and then turned the corner. And as the procession turned the corner, facing into the City Hall, there was a great roar of cheer. Because that was the first time uh, that a procession like this had been allowed to go down as far as City Hall. They were allowed to go to the periphery, that sort of thing. Mm. I forget the... But, but those were happy moments, you see, because you could see that this was a... Um, this was a... It was a breakthrough by people. Do you know, symbolic in a way that maybe the authorities didn't realise.
0: Do you think that after all the years of the armed struggle and the conflict that were after coming out on top...
1: Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, there's no going back, I think. I think there's no going back. The one thing I am afraid of, and I must say it to you, the one thing I'm afraid of is that the people who should help, I have this awful feeling that they might turn their back on people up here who have put up with so much and suffered so much bad government, and that for one reason or another, um, it's hard to know how to put this, but that there may be such splits and all that among people that the whole force of the demand for civil rights uh, and for recognition of your dignity may be crippled.
0: Are worried about splits within, within the... I'm
1: worried about it now, because, um, I mean, there's still, party politics is still doing a lot of damage, I think, whereby people will... Instead of coming together for one common cause, that is good government, one party will be fighting another for supremacy.
0: Within the nationalist
1: communities? Yeah. And that's disaster. And I'd hate to think that that would cripple us. It would be just too bad. I think that the political parties who really believe in in, uh, justice and good government must have I think an obligation absolute obligation to to select one issue namely the dignity of the citizens and stick by that and achieve it and then they can have their squabbles inter-party squabbles after that if they want to as they inevitably will but there must be one single issue on which people will get together and finish it once and for all. And then they can squabble as much as they like. Although, <laughs> that'll be a pain in the head too. I mean, whatever the no matter.
0: What, what do you hope for the future of the people around here?
1: For here? Well, there's, there's a big change that already happened. And as you look around, you see it. The housing is very much better than it was. Uh, a number of years ago was appalling people people got towers thrown at them you know and not not built for them thrown at them but so there's a, there's also very important a greater expectation and a greater realization that people don't just need to get uh, uh to get what was it? Uh, there are areas where they talk about um, lifting people out of poverty. We got beyond that. Political parties and governments must not only help to lift, help people to lift themselves out of poverty, but they must lift themselves into prosperity. But you're not hearing that. People are not so interested in being lifted out of poverty. They've been interested, They're interested in lifting themselves into prosperity, which is a different matter. It's a step more than, and that's going to be for the future. But uh, people have got to the point now of realizing that they don't just deserve to live. They deserve to have all the things that are necessary for the enhancement of human life. It's okay, people are going on cruises, they're going off to Barbados, they're going over the lake. That's great. But there's tremendous movement in Europe, as there is elsewhere, to stop that and to bring you back again to the concept of We'll help you to get out of poverty. That's not enough. James Connolly said our what our what was it he said that our demands are quite modest. We just want the whole world. So, so <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way. I mean but so the, it's the optimism of the people and the fact that the people are now deciding. The school, okay. You leave school, you may go and get a trade because it's more difficult to discriminate against you. Uh, You can go to university. Why shouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Why not? And somebody was saying today, so-and-so's in the university and studying politics and I said if that doesn't frighten us, people at the top I don't know what will except that the universities can sometimes be a wee bit dashy on the kind of politics they
0: Aye.
1: you know however anyway
0: what would you say to a young person out today if they came to you looking for a bit of advice from
1: a, advice? a man who's had a long well, life I must say I would be inclined to say to them and have said to them first of all enjoy life You know, enjoy life in in a, well, obviously in a sensible way, but enjoy it. We were were full of anxiety, you know, in our day. But enjoy that. And then remember that everything that's out there is for us and them and all the rest. (laughs) Whoever all the rest may be. There's nothing out there that's not for me or for you. Okay, let's have it. Oh let's get it. (laughs) Really? so I would I'm not sure about what else I would would hate to give any other advice.
0: You've had a good life anyway so far?
1: Ah yes, I mean I I've been very fortunate in that I I, uh, I had opportunities, a lot of which I didn't accept. And uh, learning was one of them, because I wasn't interested in what the schools were teaching. That's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? Uh, I went to school every day. I don't think I missed a day at school. But that was because I liked the company and and the, and the fun and all that. But I disliked the subjects intensely. And I, I, I couldn't, I didn't want to learn what they were teaching me. Mm. Except for two things. One was reading, uh, writing, that sort of literature thing, or science, you know.
0: I read a good book recently. It was a compilation of Puddick Pierce's letters. and it- very interested in the in the form of education that he was kind of putting together with Scolena and then um, Scoligia. Seemed like a different sort of a philosophy than, than what's out there today.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I was talking about the murder machine and all that.
0: Yeah. Said that the, his, his philosophy was to not create a system of education where it was just being the same system taught through Irish but a system of education for, for Gales uh. a big emphasis on sport and the um, sport and the theatre and things like that, it's mm-hmm. very interesting
1: Why? Well, of course you're very keen at the sort of all around it to think the theatre was important and the, the, everything, the history was important the mythology was important, everything was important, <laughs> provided it belonged to you you know <laughs> But if you look at some of the stuff that the children were given in the schools in my grandfather's time, grandmother's time, you find it was racist. Mm. It was anti-Catholic. It was whatever. It was uh, class written um, So you can see why Patrick Pierce would have called it the murder machine. Mm. Uh, the books that they were given by the National um, Education Board in Ireland, are atrocious. So that is you know, and I, I, I don't know, the, the, again, the people who are learning would need to get hold of the education. And the first thing I think should be people should learn what they want to learn, not what somebody else wants them wants to teach them. Let the people decide to themselves because if you, put a, if you put a if you put a factory in the middle of this area I reckon that there'd be enough workers qualified to work in it within six months but what they were doing is we're giving people the impression that we're doing something when they give you training for anything from metalwork to making cakes, but no industry at the end of it. It's just the cart before the horse. We'll give you a bit of training about things first, but you're going to have nothing to do with it afterwards. Put a factory in there. Six months will do it. I remember down in the old house, 123 Spring Hill Avenue that's where we started I remember Michelin advertised that they had jobs coming way up at the top of the road so we said to them use our house uh, for a day and invite people to come because in those days, even moving from one part of the city to another was, could be a bit dicey, but they said okay. So they used the house for interviews. I went away over to my own family home just for the day. And I came back in the evening and I saw a big long queue. All men waiting to get into the interview the result of that day's proceedings was that Michelin eventually revealed that there was one job available we reckoned that there was a 102 applicants from this area alone and this queue that I saw was the end of the you know, it was only part of the number of people who had been there all day. And that gave some these incidents gave you some idea, these crystallized what the what was actually happening. And um we said um it's not any question of well, it, it's a question of put the bloody thing here and we'll have enough people to run it. Of course they will. You stick one in Ballymena, who had never worked a computer in their lives, maybe, or, or, or Upper Buckna, and you'll have enough people to run it. Because people want to work. But that didn't apply. And I remember going to um, the agency... Uh, that was supposed to be pr- encouraging jobs here. And uh, we had relation, good relations with them, but they weren't producing a result, not for here, for Balamena, Balamoney, yes, kai Fergus, yes, of course. And we went to them and said, look, right up and down this road, I went up from top to bottom, and right up the road, there was people working in an old stable here, an old garage there. This one was, was uh, selling carpets. This one was doing something else. They said, these people are working in backyards and things. Why not do what led you Local uh, local enterprise development unit government operation is supposed to do set up four workshops in this area and give people six months free rent to develop what they want to do. Give them decent surroundings. They'll if they succeed, fair enough. If they don't, Not no enough. harm done. If they do succeed, they'll move into better premises other premises, and the people that are working in the stables and all the rest will move into these you would get a circle. Of, do you know what they said? They said, we would do that in other areas but wouldn't do it here. Went down to, um, there was an appalling fund started in America um, to siphon money from American Canada the, um, or the International Fund for Ireland. And uh, we, of course, thought, well, this is to produce industry and so on. And I remember going down to the man who controlled it, a man called Charlie Brett, and explained to him what we were trying to do with Conway Mill, what we were trying to do with, with um, what people were trying to do with the uh, White Rock Industrial Estate to create work. I explained it all to him, and people were doing more in this area to create work for themselves than was been done in any other area. And when I'd finished my recital, he said, he said, you must understand, he said, regards to West Belfast, we don't give out money for charity, you know. Well, I felt like striking him because... I'd given them all this explanation, what people were trying to do. And I thought, this is so-and-so must go. And so um, people, when I said this is what has happened, people said, he's got to go. And eventually they did good with him. But the International Fund for Ireland was to make sure that no money coming from America would go to the IRA. That's what it was about.
0: Mm.
1: And... Um, But it wasn't going to come to us, it wasn't going to come The other thing was that um, Clokey, who were very well known, makers of beautiful stained glass, they were down on Diva Street or Castle Street. They'd been there for years. And they were burned, not burned out, they were burned because during the 1969 time, Uh, people were afraid that that's for the snipers. No, it wouldn't have been there particularly, but any building at all. But for one reason or another, or no reason, Cloakies was burned out. Now, Cloakies had a place in England, so that wasn't too bad. But Cloakies said they wanted to come back. Now, the story was, nobody wants to come to Wellsville Falls. Cloakies wanted to come here, wanted to come back. In spite of the fact that they had had such a miserable leaving, it wasn't the people's fault, and they knew it. So another guy, a fellow from Leju, went over, and he said, would I come with him? And I said, of course I would, because it would give reassurance to Cloaky that if they came back, the people would welcome them. Would they what? So we both went over, and we told the story. But three weeks later, I got a phone call from Cloakies in England. They were making um, extractor fans and things. And um, they said, by the way, they said, we'll let you know, you remember the meeting we had with you and with Ledger? I said, yeah. Well, he said, do you know, he said, he said that we haven't heard from them since. They were raging mad. And they said at the end of the conversation, this man said, would you at least tell them that we gave them their dinner? And uh, of course, (laughs) we had gone over to the place in England. We had done our best, whatever. I don't know what led you wanted to do, but I know what I wanted to do. To reassure them that the people were welcome. Led you, never bothered their backsides, to get in touch with them again. So here was, build a cluster of four units. No, we do that somewhere else. Charlie, Brett and the International Fund for Ireland. We don't give money for charity. Cloakie. Wanted to come back and uh, led you, didn't bother their backsides with them. So, you know, they, these single instances don't make up the whole picture, but they give you a crystallisation mm. of what the situation was.
0: And how how was, like, how was your interaction and your relationship with the IRA throughout the years? Because they were obviously, you know, there's a stronghold for the IRA around here, and at times mm. they were probably essential you know, that they were active. As Can far you know, as
1: this? I was concerned... The bad government had led to the inevitable result and there was nothing else to be expected except an armed uh, resurrection or an armed insurrection. That was my view. And I've said it often enough that it was the end result for us. The 1969 pogroms against the Catholics was, in my opinion, it was... For the Loyalists and the British, it was the final solution to the Irish problem. You wipe them. But for the people who stood behind the barricades in Derry and elsewhere, it was the last resort. It was a war of the final solution against the last resort. And I still believe that's exactly what it was. And as far as I would, I had, uh, although I never publicised it, I had a meeting with a man who was very, who was a senior British Army person. The meeting was facilitated by the American consul in Belfast. And um, in the course of the conversation, this man said to me, he says, You know, he says, I think we were trying to understand each other. He said, You know, he says, we're only trying to bring the peace. We're only trying to make peace in Northern Ireland. And I said, Well, you can never make peace unless your government, unless you tell the people the truth. Well, he says, well, I said, you don't tell them the truth. You tell them that you're fighting against a lot of thugs and blackguards. You're not. You're fighting against people who now have risen up against bad government. And your man, the consul, he broke in at this stage and he says, you know, he says, Oh, I, and I said, "Well, that's not what you're. That's not what you're telling your people in England." And your man said, "You know, he says, what He says what the military tell their government, and what the government tells their people can be two quite different things.'" Mm. And your man agreed. And he says to me, and you see, I'm always hard to know how much you can say of this because the person involved is still alive and kicking. And, I mean, all the conversations we ever had with people, like in, in official places, and there were plenty of conversations. Yeah, right, we're having conversations um, Republican movement was having conversations, so there was no secret about the fact, but they were all taken to be, like Alec Reid and the rest, they were all taken to be confidential. So you could only talk about these things in the very broadest of terms. And I have said, as written up at times, that the British Army admitted in private the real nature of the IRA. But they didn't, and presumably, in fact, we have reason to believe that they told the government that the government told their people something quite different—that these were thugs and blackguards—and this was a civil matter. Um, And he says to me then a most remarkable thing. He says, "I understand." He says, "What it is? uh, We're fighting." He said, "The IRA is." A disciplined, well organised and fairly effective, you wouldn't say completely effective, fairly effective guerrilla army. Now that was from a British army, very high standing. So you can only say things like this in the very broadest of terms, that the British army knew perfectly well what they were fighting. And the British government knew what they were fighting. And there's evidence to show it. But you can't actually identify. At least I think you can't. I mean, we went into conversation with people. And um, we had to take... We learned a lot about what people were thinking or what they wanted us to think they were thinking. (laughs) but we were, we were just caged by the fact that if you don't observe a certain um, confidentiality, you're getting nowhere in the future. Therefore, you have to clothe it in a different way. And you have to be able to say, this is the way it is, and trust that people will trust you enough that you're not saying it's out of the blue. So anyway, but that's the way it was. Mm. And so you had this lying propaganda and stuff like that. It was appalling. But um, when I thought of the soldiers going around there, the British soldiers, with shields and battering on the shields to frighten the natives, this is what they did in Kenya, this is what they did in Africa, different parts of Africa, etc etc. And they tried it on here and it didn't work. That's for sure. But I think the IRA won. I mean, there's no question of it. But I couldn't take sides. I couldn't take sides. Oh, there you are. (laughs) I think we better go and I'll go to bed again. You finished? I'll I'll only take a wee bit more than A tiredness creaking in I oh, it is down day you were talking flat out there what time is it anyway
0: when he gets started sometimes you can't get him to I was, get me I was to about to get the earmuffs on so it was <laughs> <laughs> huh?
1: what's that so now Here. I'll have to go back and lie on my back
0: thanks very much for doing that
1: well listen I hope it will be something That's you used to fantastic
0: do you have any good, any good jokes the which? do you have any jokes jokes uh,
1: not really not <laughs> really <laughs> Uh, clerical jokes were never the most respectable. <laughs> you want to hear one? I do, uh, provided that it doesn't. That's PG. You ever read PG Woodhouse? Uh, you know, PG Woodhouse. He talks about anything that would bring the blush of shame to the no, cheek no. of modesty. It's clean. <laughs> but so what is the joke?
0: Did you hear about the carrot that died? About the the carrot that died? No. There was a huge turnout at the funeral
1: oh god oh that's <laughs> desperate <laughs> if I were to tell that first thing in the morning in the kitchen when we gather ourselves together I'd be thrown out oh well listen here how long are you staying around then
0: um, I have to go back down to uh tomorrow
1: was there a friend here
0: I'm going to walk down this down.
1: oh is that where she I'm down is to, I'm going to meet my
0: dad actually in the van.
1: Okay, so i give him all the best. Oh, give him a big hug for it. I <laughs> haven't seen him for quite a while, but I haven't been around much. I'll
0: before. tell him you were, you were asking about that him. Yeah. That's episode 27 of the Rebel Matters podcast in the bag. I hope you enjoyed it. So as usual, share it on your social media. Let me know what you think about the episode by getting in touch, and wherever you're listening to this podcast, give us an old five star rating and review, and add a wee comment if you want to as well. That really helps to keep the whole thing on the road. So, good evening, Caterella, um Can you give Fury biggi August by me kind of long